Black Clock Audio Tales 2019, Mary Shelley. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out the brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers make a roaring sound every three steps. Made with green, scaly-looking fabric that's actually a soft plush. Foam footbeds, non-slip grips on your soles so you don't slip around. One size fits most, up to women's 10.5, men's 9. Footbed measures 10.5. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads you a story, either a chapter or two at a time, or a couple of short stories, maybe some folklore. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us at the end of the month every last Tuesday of the month where we have The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, where you get to hear me talk in a lot more dumb voices than right now. Look for us wherever you look for podcasts, rate, review, and give us five, four, three, two, one stars. We don't like the one and two stars, but hey, if that's how you feel, you probably have a vendetta against us and don't know how to use the skip button. We are on the Instagram, the Facebook, and the Twitter as Black Clock Audio Tales, or just Google us, Black Clock Audio Tales. There's no one else named that, otherwise we wouldn't name it this. Thank you, and let's get going with The Last Man by Mary Shelley. Reading by Robin Cotter November 2007 The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley Volume 3, Chapter 5 After the repose of a few days, we held a council to decide on our future movements. Our first plan had been to quit our wintry native latitude and seek for our diminished numbers the luxuries and delights of a southern climate. We had not fixed on any precise spot as the termination of our wanderings, but a vague picture of perpetual spring, fragrant groves and sparkling streams, floated in our imagination to entice us on. A variety of causes had detained us in England, and we had now arrived at the middle of February. If we pursued our original project, we should find ourselves in a worse situation than before having exchanged our temperate climate for the intolerable heats of a summer in Egypt or Persia. We were therefore obliged to modify our plan, as the season continued to be inclement, and it was determined that we should await the arrival of spring in our present abode, and so order our future movements as to pass the hot months in the icy valleys of Switzerland deferring our southern progress until the ensuing autumn, if such a season was ever again to be beheld by us. The castle and town of Versailles afforded our numbers ample accommodation, and foraging parties took it by turns to supply our wants. There was a strange and appalling motley in the situation of these the last of the race. At first I likened it to a colony which, born over the far seas, struck root for the first time in a new country. But where was the bustle and industry characteristic of such an assemblage? The rudely constructed dwelling, which was to suffice till a more commodious mansion could be built, the making out of fields, 
the attempt at cultivation, the eager curiosity to discover unknown animals and herbs, the excursions for the sake of exploring the country? Our habitations were palaces, our food was ready stored in granaries, there was no need of labor, no inquisitiveness, no restless desire to get on. If we had been assured that we should secure the lives of our present numbers, there would have been more vivacity and hope in our councils. We should have discussed as to the period when the existing produce for the man's sustenance would no longer suffice for us, and what mode of life we should then adopt. We should have considered more carefully our future plans, and debated concerning the spot where we should in future dwell. But summer and the plague were near, and we dared not look forward. Every heart sickened at the thought of amusement. If the younger part of our community were ever impelled by youthful and untamed hilarity to enter on any dance or song, to cheer the melancholy time, they would suddenly break off, checked by a mournful look or agonizing sigh from any one among them, who was prevented by sorrows and losses from mingling in the festivity. If laughter echoed under our roof, yet the heart was vacant of joy. And whenever it chanced that I witnessed such attempts at pastime, they increased instead of diminishing my sense of woe. In the midst of the pleasure-hunting throng, I would close my eyes and see before me the obscure cavern where was garnered the mortality of Idris, and the dead lay around, moldering in hushed repose. When I again became aware of the present hour, softest melody of Lydian flute, or harmonious maze of graceful dance, was but as the demonic chorus in the wolf's glen, and the caperings of the reptiles that surrounded the magic circle. My dearest interval of peace occurred, when, released from the obligation of associating with the crowd, I could repose in the dear home where my children lived. Children, I say, for the tenderest emotions of paternity bound me to Clara. She was now fourteen, sorrow and deep insight into the scenes around her, calmed the restless spirit of girlhood, while the remembrance of her father, whom she idolized, and respect for me and Adrian, implanted a high sense of duty in her young heart. Though serious, she was not sad. The eager desire that makes us all, when young, plume our wings and stretch our necks, that we may more swiftly alight tiptoe on the height of maturity, was subdued in her by early experience. All that she could spare of overflowing love from her parents' memory, and attention to her living relatives, was spent upon religion. This was the hidden law of her heart, which she concealed with childish reserve, and cherished the more because it was secret. What faith so entire, what charity so pure, what hope so fervent, as that of early youth? And she, all love, all tenderness, and trust, who from infancy had been tossed on the wide sea of passion and misfortune, saw the finger of apparent divinity in all, and her best hope was to make herself acceptable to the power she worshipped. Evelyn was only five years old, his joyous heart was incapable of sorrow, and he enlivened our house with the innocent mirth incident to his ears. The aged Countess of Windsor had fallen from her dream of power, rank, and grandeur. She had been suddenly seized with the conviction that love was the only good of life, 
virtue the only ennobling distinction and enriching wealth. Such a lesson had been taught her by the dead lips of her neglected daughter, and she devoted herself, with all the fiery violence of her character, to the obtaining the affection of the remnants of her family. In early years the heart of Adrian had been chilled towards her, and, though he observed a due respect, her coldness, mixed with the recollection of disappointment and madness, caused him to feel even pain in her society. She saw this, and yet determined to win his love. The obstacle served the rather to excite her ambition. As Henry, Emperor of Germany, lay in the snow before Pope Leo's gate for three winter days and nights, so did she, in humility, wait before the icy barriers of his closed heart till he, the servant of love, and prince of tender courtesy, opening it wide for her admittance, bestowing with fervency and gratitude the tribute of filial affection she merited. Her understanding, courage, and presence of mind became powerful auxiliaries to him in the difficult task of ruling the tumultuous crowd, which were subjected to his control, in truth, by a single hair. The principal circumstances that disturbed our tranquillity during this interval originated in the vicinity of the impostor prophet and his followers. They continued to reside at Paris, but missionaries from among them often visited Versailles, and such was the power of assertions, however false, yet vehemently iterated, over the ready credulity of their ignorant and fearful, that they seldom failed in drawing over to their party some from among our numbers. An instance of this nature coming immediately under our notice, we were led to consider the miserable state in which we should leave our countrymen, when we should, at the approach of summer, move on towards Switzerland, and leave a deluded crew behind us in the hands of their miscreant leader. The sense of the smallness of our numbers, and expectation of decrease, pressed upon us, and, while it would be a subject of congratulation to ourselves to add one to our party, it would be doubly gratifying to rescue from the pernicious influence of superstition and unrelenting tyranny the victims that now, though voluntarily enchained, groaned beneath it. If we had considered the preacher as sincere in a belief of his own denunciations, or only moderately actuated by kind feeling in the exercise of his assumed powers, we should have immediately addressed ourselves to him, and endeavoured with our best arguments to soften and humanise his views. But he was instigated by ambition. He desired to rule over these last stragglers from that fold of death. His projects went so far as to cause him to calculate that, if from these crushed remains a few survived, so that a new race should spring up, he, by holding tight the reins of belief, might be remembered by the post-pestilential race as a patriarch, a prophet, nay, a deity, such as of old among the post-Diluvians were Jupiter the conqueror, Serapis the lawgiver, and Vishnu the preserver. These ideas made him inflexible in his rule, and violent in his hate of any who presumed to share with him his usurped empire. It is a strange fact, but incontestable, that the philanthropist, who, ardent in his desire to do good, who, patient, reasonable, and gentle, yet disdains to use other argument than truth, has less influence over men's minds than he who, grasping and selfish, refuses not to adopt any means, nor awaken any passion, 
nor diffuse any falsehood for the advancement of his cause. If this, from time immemorial, has been the case, the contrast was infinitely greater, now that the one could bring harrowing fears and transcendent hopes into play, while the other had few hopes to hold forth, nor could influence the imagination to diminish the fears which he himself was the first to entertain. The preacher had persuaded his followers that their escape from the plague, the salvation of their children, and the rise of a new race of men from their seed, depended on their faith in and their submission to him. They greedily imbibed this belief, and their overweening credulity even rendered them eager to make converts to the same faith. How to seduce any individuals from such an alliance of fraud was a frequent subject of Adrian's meditations and discourse. He formed many plans for the purpose, but his own troop kept him in full occupation to ensure their fidelity and safety, beside which the preacher was as cautious and prudent as he was cruel. His victims lived under the strictest rules and laws, which either entirely imprisoned them within the Tuileries, or let them out in such numbers, and under such leaders, as precluded the possibility of controversy. There was one among them, however, whom I resolved to save. She had been known to us in happier days. Idris had loved her, and her excellent nature made it peculiarly lamentable that she should be sacrificed by this merciless cannibal of souls. This man had between two and three hundred persons enlisted under his banners, more than half of them were women, there were about fifty children of all ages, and not more than eighty men, they were mostly drawn from that, which when the distinctions existed, was denominated the lower rank of society. The exceptions consisted of a few high-born females, who, panic-struck and tamed by sorrow, had joined them. Among these was one, young, lovely, and enthusiastic, whose very goodness made her a more easy victim. I have mentioned her before. Juliet, the youngest daughter, and now sole relic of the ducal house of L. There are some beings whom fate seems to select on whom to pour, in unmeasured portion, the vials of her wrath, and whom she bathes even to the lips in misery. Such a one was the ill-starred Juliet. She had lost her indulgent parents, her brother and sisters, companions of her youth, in one fell swoop, they had been carried off from her. Yet she had again dared to call herself happy, united to her admirer, to him who possessed and filled her whole heart. She yielded to the Lithian powers of love, and knew and felt only his life and presence. At the very time when, with keen delight, she welcomed the tokens of maternity, this sole prop of her life failed. Her husband died of the plague. For a time she had been lulled in insanity. The birth of her child restored her to the cruel reality of things, but gave her at the same time an object for whom to preserve at once life and reason. Every friend and relative had died off, and she was reduced to solitude and penury. Deep melancholy and angry impatience distorted her judgment, so that she could not persuade herself to disclose her distress to us, when she heard of the plan of universal emigration, she resolved to remain behind with her child, and alone in wide England, to live or die, as fate might decree, beside the grave of her beloved. She had hidden herself in one of the many habitations of London, 
It was she who rescued my Idris on the fatal 20th of November, though my immediate danger and the subsequent illness of Idris caused us to forget our hapless friend. This circumstance had, however, brought her again in contact with her fellow-creatures. A slight illness of her infant proved to her that she was still bound to humanity by an indestructible tie. To preserve this little creature's life became the object of her being, and she joined the first division of migrants who went over to Paris. She became an easy prey to the Methodist. Her sensibility and acute fears rendered her accessible to every impulse. Her love for her child made her eager to cling to the merest straw held out to save him. Her mind, once unstrung, and now tuned by roughest inharmonious hands, made her credulous, beautiful as fabled goddess, with voice of unrivaled sweetness, burning with new lighted enthusiasm. She became a steadfast proselyte, and powerful auxiliary to the leader of the elect. I had remarked her in the crowd on the day we met on the Place Vendôme, and, recollecting suddenly her providential rescue of my lost one, on the night of the twentieth of November, I reproached myself for the neglect and ingratitude, and felt impelled to leave no means that I could adopt untried, to recall her to her better self, and rescue her from the fangs of the hypocrite destroyer. I will not, at this period of my story, record the artifices I used to penetrate the asylum of the Tuileries, or give what would be a tedious account of my stratagems, disappointments, and perseverance. I at last succeeded in entering these walls, and roamed its halls and corridors in eager hope to find my selected convert. In the evening I contrived to mingle unobserved with the congregation, which assembled in the chapel to listen to the crafty and eloquent harangue of their prophet. I saw Juliet near him. Her dark eyes, fearfully impressed with the restless glare of madness, were fixed on him. She held her infant, not yet a year old, in her arms, and care of it alone could distract her attention from the words to which she eagerly listened. After the sermon was over, the congregation dispersed. All quitted the chapel, except she whom I sought. Her babe had fallen asleep, so she placed it on a cushion, and sat on the floor beside, watching its tranquil slumber. I presented myself to her. For a moment natural feeling produced a sentiment of gladness, which disappeared again, when, with ardent and affectionate exhortation, I besought her to accompany me in flight from this den of superstition and misery. In a moment she relapsed into the delirium of fanaticism, and, but that her gentle nature forbade, would have loaded me with execrations. She conjured me, she commanded me to leave her. Beware, oh beware, she cried, fly while yet your escape is practicable. Now you are safe, but strange sounds and inspirations come on me at times, and if the Eternal should in awful whisper reveal to me his will, that to save my child you must be sacrificed, I would call in the satellites of him you call the tyrant, they would tear you limb from limb, nor would I hallow the death of him who Idris loved by a single tear. She spoke hurriedly, with tuneless voice and wild look. Her child awoke, and frightened began to cry. Each sob went to the ill-fated mother's heart, and she mingled the epithets of endearment she addressed to her infant, with angry commands that I should leave her. Had I had the means, I would have risked all, 
have torn her by force from the murderer's den, and trusted to the healing balm of reason and affection. But I had no choice, no power even of longer struggle. Steps were heard along the gallery, and the voice of the preacher drew near. Juliet, straining her child in a close embrace, fled by another passage. Even then I would have followed her, but my foe and his satellites entered. I was surrounded and taken prisoner. I remembered the menace of the unhappy Juliet, and expected the full tempest of the man's vengeance, and the awakened wrath of his followers, to fall instantly upon me. I was questioned. My answers were simple and sincere. His own mouth condemns him, exclaimed the impostor. He confesses that his intention was to seduce from the way of salvation our well-beloved sister in God. Away with him to the dungeon. Tomorrow he dies the death. We are manifestly called upon to make an example, tremendous and appalling, to scare the children of sin from our asylum of the saved. My heart revolted from his hypocritical jargon, but it was unworthy of me to combat in words with the ruffian, and my answer was cool, while far from being possessed with fear, methought, even at the worst, a man to himself, courageous and determined, could fight his way, even from the boards of the scaffold, through the herd of these misguided maniacs. Remember, I said, who I am, and be well assured that I shall not die unavenged. Your legal magistrate, the Lord Protector, knew of my design, and is aware that I am here. The cry of blood will reach him, and you and your miserable victims will long lament the tragedy you are about to act. My antagonist did not deign to reply, even by a look. You know your duty, he said to his comrades. Obey. In a moment I was thrown on the earth, bound, blindfolded, and hurried away, Liberty of limb and sight was only restored to me when, surrounded by dungeon walls, dark and impervious, I found myself a prisoner and alone. Such was the result of my attempt to gain over the proselyte of this man of crime. I could not conceive that he would dare put me to death, yet I was in his hands. The path of his ambition had ever been dark and cruel. His power was founded upon fear, the one word which might cause me to die unheard, unseen, in the obscurity of my dungeon, might be easier to speak than the deed of mercy to act. He would not risk, probably, a public execution, but a private assassination would at once terrify any of my companions from attempting a like feat, at the same time that a cautious line of conduct might enable him to avoid the inquiries and the vengeance of Adrian." Two months ago, in a vault more obscure than the one I now inhabited, I had revolved the design of quietly laying me down to die. Now I shuddered at the approach of my fate. My imagination was busied in shaping forth the kind of death he would inflict. Would he allow me to wear out life with famine? Or was the food administered to me to be medicined with death? Would he steal on me in my sleep, or should I contend to the last, with my murderers knowing, even while I struggled, that I must be overcome? I lived upon an earth whose diminished population a child's arithmetic might number. I had lived through long months with death stalking close at my side, while at intervals the shadow of his skeleton shape darkened my path. I had believed that I despised the grim phantom, and laughed his power to scorn. Any other fate I should have met with courage, nay, have gone out gallantly to encounter— 
but to be murdered thus at the midnight hour by cold-blooded assassins, no friendly hand to close my eyes or receive my parting blessing, to die in combat, hate, and execration. Ah, why, my angel love, didst thou restore me to life, when already I had stepped within the portals of the tomb, now that so soon again I was to be flung back a mangled corpse? Hours passed, centuries, could I give words to the many thoughts which occupied me in endless succession during this interval? I should fill volumes. The air was dank, the dungeon floor mildewed and icy cold. Hunger came upon me too, and no sound reached me from without. Tomorrow the ruffian had declared that I should die. When would tomorrow come? Was it not already here? My door was about to be opened. I heard the key turn, and the bars and bolts slowly removed. The opening of intervening passages permitted sounds from the interior of the palace to reach me. And I heard the clock strike one. They come to murder me, I thought. This hour does not befit a public execution. I drew myself up against the wall opposite the entrance. I collected my forces. I rallied my courage. I would not fall a tame prey. Slowly the door receded on its hinges. I was ready to spring forward to seize and grapple with the intruder till the sight of who it was changed at once the temper of my mind. It was Juliet herself. Pale and trembling she stood, a lamp in her hand, on the threshold of the dungeon, looking at me with wistful countenance. But in a moment she reassumed her self-possession, and her languid eyes recovered their brilliancy. She said, I am come to save you, Verney. And yourself also, I cried. Dearest friend, can we indeed be saved? Not a word, she replied. Follow me. I obeyed instantly. We threaded, with light steps many corridors, ascended several flights of stairs, and passed through long galleries. At the end of one she unlocked a low portal. A rush of wind extinguished our lamp. But in lieu of it we had the blessed moonbeams and the open face of heaven. Then first Juliet spoke. You are safe, she said. God bless you. Farewell. I seized her reluctant hand. "'Dear friend,' I cried, "'misguided victim, do you not intend to escape with me? Have you not risked all in facilitating my flight? And do you think that I will permit you to return, and suffer alone the effects of that miscreant's rage? Never!' "'Do not fear for me,' replied the lovely girl mournfully, "'and do not imagine that without the consent of our chief you could be without these walls. It is he that has saved you.' He assigned to me the part of leading you hither, because I am best acquainted with your motives for coming here, and can best appreciate his mercy in permitting you to depart. And are you, I cried, the dupe of this man? He dreads me alive as an enemy, and dead he fears my avengers. By favoring this clandestine escape, he preserves a shoe of constancy to his followers, but mercy is far from his heart." Do you forget his artifices, his cruelty and fraud? As I am free, so are you. Come, Juliet, the mother of our lost Idris will welcome you. The noble Adrian will rejoice to receive you. You will find peace and love, and better hopes than fanaticism can afford. Come and fear not, long before day we shall be at Versailles. Close the door on this abode of crime. Come, sweet Juliet, from hypocrisy and guilt to the society of the affectionate and good. I spoke hurriedly, but with fervor, and while, with gentle violence, I drew her from the portal, 
some thought, some recollection of past scenes of youth and happiness, made her listen and yield to me. Suddenly she broke away with a piercing shriek. "'My child! My child! He has my child! My darling girl is my hostage!' She darted from me into the passage. The gate closed between us. She was left in the fangs of this man of crime, a prisoner, still to inhale the pestilential atmosphere which adhered to his demonic nature. The unimpeded breeze played on my cheek. The moon shone graciously upon me. My path was free. Glad to have escaped, yet melancholy in my very joy, I retrod my steps to Versailles. End of Volume 3, Chapter 5 sorry for the interruption. More The Last Man coming up. But before that, I'd like to thank you for listening. We'd love to hear from you and your suggestions for future episodes and topic ideas at facebook.com blackclockaudio. Help support the show by keeping it paywall-free by going to paypal.me slash pgttcm and donate a buck or five to pgttcm.podbean.com and become a patron. We'll never ask you for your info or ask you to fill out a survey or just tell your friends about us. That's that's all we ask. Do you have no cash to donate? That's fine. Neither do we. Help the show by sharing, rating, liking, or five-star giving wherever you get your podcasts from. You can always buy a cool shirt from pgttcm.threadless.com and if you're wondering hey what's all this pgttcm stuff about people's guide to the cthulhu mythos is our monthly end of the month show where we talk to cthulhu mythos writers game designers talk about various aspects of the cthulhu mythos going from the big bang to the cooling of our sun just the whole whole, whole kit and caboodle from the perspective of earthlings of course Next month is going to be Ambrose Bitterbeers, one of my favorite weird fiction authors who also wrote Civil War tales and spooky dookie stories, and also, you know, Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, that, that uh, story your 8th or ninth grade English teacher made you read. Yeah, Ambrose Beers, but we won't hold that against him. It's a good story, though. And in August, we're going to have... Anyone but Durleth, Cthulhu Mythos, non-Durlethian Mythos stories, and more about August Durleth himself and Arkham House Publishing, and pretty much, I don't know, kind of talk about why everyone makes fun of August Durleth, but without him, uh, there's, there's, there's some stuff that would be missing. September. Bronte, Bronte, Bronte. Oh yeah, it's going to be all about the Brontes. And, of course, we'll more than likely have Andrew Grace uh, talking about the Brontes again, because Andrew Grace likes to talk about the Brontes. October, nothing but spooky stories that you can play all October long, and, ooh, maybe even December and November, when it's even darker and scarier. And November will be Old English Lit. So we're going to be doing stuff like Beowulf and stuff around that neck of the woods. Old English 800 Lit. It's that smooth, mellow lit that gives you more power. Old English 800 lit. And we don't have anything planned for December. But hey, if you want to pitch in your two cents or your, I don't know, uh, opinion, we can, we, we'll listen, we'll check it out. And if it's something that we can arrange, then it's something we can do. So 
Your input is always appreciated. Thank you so much. And back to Mary Shelley's The Last Man. Whole lot of walking. Recording by Stephanie Dupal de Martin. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume 3, Chapter 6. Eventful winter passed, winter, the respite of our ills. By degrees the sun, which with slant beams had before yielded the more extended rain to night, lengthened his diurnal journey and mounted his highest throne, at once the fosterer of earth's new beauty and her lover. We who, like flies that congregate upon a dry rock at the ebbing of the tide, had played wantonly with time, allowing our passions, our hopes, and our mad desires to rule us, now heard the approaching roar of the ocean of destruction, and would have fled to some sheltered crevice before the first wave broke over us. We resolved without delay to commence our journey to Switzerland. We became eager to leave France. Under the icy vaults of the glaciers, beneath the shadow of the pines, the swing of whose mighty branches was arrested by a load of snow, beside the streams whose intense cold proclaimed their origin to be from the slow-melting piles of congelated waters, amidst frequent storms which might purify the air, we should find health, if in truth health were not herself diseased. We began our preparations at first with alacrity. We did not now bid adieu to our native country, to the graves of those we loved, to the flowers and streams and trees which had lived beside us from infancy. Small sorrow would be ours on leaving Paris, a scene of shame when we remembered our late contentions and thought that we left behind a flock of miserable, deluded victims, bending under the tyranny of a selfish impostor. Small pangs should we feel in leaving the gardens, woods, and halls of the palaces of the Bourbons at Versailles, which we feared would soon be tainted by the dead, when we looked forward to valleys lovelier than any garden, to mighty forests and halls, built not for mortal majesty, but palaces of nature's own, with the alp of marmorial whiteness for their walls, the sky for their roof. Yet our spirits flagged as the day drew near which we had fixed for our departure. Dire visions and evil auguries of such things were, thickened round us, so that in vain might men say, These are their reasons, they are natural. We felt them to be ominous and dreaded the future event and chained to them, that the night owl should screech before the noonday sun, that the hard-winged bat should wheel around the bed of beauty, that muttering thunder should in early spring startle the cloudless air, that sudden and exterminating blight should fall on the tree and shrub, where unaccustomed but physical events less horrible than the mental creations of almighty fear. Some had sight of funeral processions, and faces all begrimed with tears, which flitted through the long avenues of the gardens, and drew aside the curtains of the sleepers at dead of night. Some heard wailing and cries in the air. A mournful chaunt would stream through the dark atmosphere, as if spirits above sang the requiem of the human race. What was there in all this, but that fear created other senses within our frames, making us see, hear, and feel what was not? What was this but the action of diseased imaginations, and childish credulity? So might it be. But what was most real was the existence of these very fears, the staring looks of horror, the faces pale even to ghastliness, the voices struck dumb with harrowing dread, of those among us who saw and heard these things. Of this number was Adrian, who knew the delusion, yet could not cast off the clinging terror. 
Even ignorant infancy appeared with timorous shrieks and convulsions to acknowledge the presence of unseen powers. We must go. In change of scene, in occupation, in such security as we still hope to find, we should discover a cure for these gathering horrors. On mustering our company, we found them to consist of fourteen hundred souls, men, women, and children. Until now, therefore, we were undiminished in numbers, except by the desertion of those who had attached themselves to the impostor prophet and remained behind in Paris. About fifty French joined us. Our order of march was easily arranged. The ill success which had attended our division determined Adrian to keep all in one body. I, with an hundred men, went forward first as purveyor, taking the road of the Côte d'Or, through Auxerre, Dijon, Dole, over the Jura to Geneva. I was to make arrangements at every ten miles for the accommodation of such numbers as I found the town or village would receive, leaving behind a messenger with a written order, signifying how many were to be quartered there. The remainder of our tribe was then divided into bands of fifty each, every division containing eighteen men, and the remainder consisting of women and children. Each of these was headed by an officer, who carried the roll of names by which they were each day to be mustered. If the numbers were divided at night, in the morning those in the van waited for those in the rear. At each of the large towns before mentioned we were all to assemble, and a conclave of the principal officers would hold counsel for the general wheel. I went first, as I said, Adrian last. His mother, with Clara and Evelyn under her protection, remained also with him. Thus her order being determined, I departed. My plan was to go at first no further than Fontainebleau, where in a few days I should be joined by Adrian, before I took flight again further eastward. My friend accompanied me a few miles from Versailles. He was sad, and in a tone of unaccustomed despondency, uttered a prayer for our speedy arrival among the Alps, accompanied with an expression of vain regret that we were not already there. In that case, I observed, we can quicken our march. Why adhere to a plan whose dilatory proceeding you already disapprove? Nay, replied he, it is too late now. A month ago, and we were masters of ourselves, now, he turned his face from me, though gathering twilight had already veiled its expression. He turned it yet more away as he added, A man died of the plague last night. He spoke in a smothered voice, and then suddenly clasping his hands, he exclaimed, Swiftly, most swiftly, advances the last hour for us all. As the stars vanish before the sun, so will his near approach destroy us. I have done my best. With grasping hands and impotent strength, I have hung on the wheel of the chariot of plague, but she drags me along with it, while, like juggernaut, she proceeds crushing out the being of all who strew the high road of life. Would that it were over, would that her procession achieved. We had all entered the tomb together. Tears streamed from his eyes. Again and again, he continued, will the tragedy be acted. Again I must hear the groans of the dying, the wailing of the survivors, again witness the pangs which, consummating all, envelope an eternity in their evanescent existence. Why am I reserved for this? Why the tainted weather of the flock? Am I not struck to earth among the first? It is hard, very hard, for one of woman born to endure all that I endure. Hitherto, with an undaunted spirit and a high feeling of duty and worth, Adrian had fulfilled his self-imposed task. I had contemplated with him reverence and a fruitless desire of imitation. I now offered a few words of encouragement and sympathy. He hid his face in his hands, and while he strove to calm himself, he ejaculated, For a few months, 
Yet for a few months more let not, O oh God, my heart fail, or my courage be bowed down. Let not sights of intolerable misery madden this half-crazed brain, or cause this frail heart to beat against its prison bound so that it burst. I have believed it to be my destiny to guide and rule the last of the race of man, till death extinguish my government, and to this destiny I submit. Pardon me, Verne, I pain you, but I will no longer complain. Now I am myself again, or rather I am better than myself. You have known how from my childhood aspiring thoughts and high desires have warred with inherent disease and overstrained sensitiveness till the latter became victors. You know how I placed this wasted feeble hand on the abandoned helm of human government. I have been visited at times by intervals of fluctuation. Yet, until now, I have felt as if a superior indefatigable spirit had taken up its abode within me, or rather incorporated itself with my weaker being. The holy visitant has for a time slept, perhaps to show me how powerless I am without its inspiration. Yet stay for a while, O power of goodness and strength. Disdain not yet this rent shrine of fleshy mortality, O immortal capability. While one fellow creature remains to whom aid can be afforded, stay by and prop your shattered falling engine. His vehemence and voice, broken by irrepressible sighs, sunk to my heart. His eyes gleamed in the gloom of night, like two earthly stars, and his form dilating, his countenance beaming, truly it almost seemed as if at his eloquent appeal a more than mortal spirit entered his frame, exalting him above humanity. He turned quickly towards me and held out his hand. Farewell, Vernet, he cried, brother of my love, farewell. No other weak expression must cross these lips. I am alive again. To our tasks, to our combats with our unvanquishable foe, for to the last I will struggle against her. He grasped my hand and bent a look on me, more fervent and animated than any smile, then turning his horse's head he touched the animal with a spur and was out of sight in a moment. A man last night had died of the plague. The quiver was not emptied, nor the bow unstrung. We stood as marks like Parthian pestilence aimed and shot, insatiated by conquest, unobstructed by the heaps of slain. A sickness of the soul, contagious even to my physical mechanism, came over me. My knees knocked together, my teeth chattered, the current of my blood, clotted by sudden cold, painfully forced its sway from my heavy heart. I did not fear for myself, but it was misery to think that we could not even save this remnant that those I loved might in a few days be as clay-cold as Idris in her antique tomb, nor could strength of body or energy of mind ward off the blow. A sense of degradation came over me. Did God create man merely in the end to become dead earth in the midst of healthful vegetating nature? Was he of no more account to his maker than a field of corn blighted in the ear? Were our proud dreams thus to fade? Our name was written a little lower than the angels, and behold, we were no better than ephemera. We had called ourselves the paragon of animals, and lo, we were a quintessence of dust. We repined that the pyramids had outlasted the embalmed body of their builder. Alas, the mere shepherd's hut of straw we passed on the road contained in its structure the principle of greater longevity than the whole race of man. How reconcile this sad change to our past aspirations, to our apparent powers, Sudden an internal voice, articulate and clear, seemed to say, Thus from eternity it was decreed, The steeds that bear time onwards had this hour and this fulfillment enchained to them, Since the void brought forth its burthen. Would you read backwards the unchangeable laws of necessity? 
mother of the world, servant of the omnipotent, eternal, changeless necessity, who with busy fingers sittest ever weaving the indissoluble chain of events, I will not murmur at thy acts, if my human mind cannot acknowledge that all that is, is right, yet since what is must be, I will sit amidst the ruins and smile. Truly we were not born to enjoy, but to submit, and to hope. Will not the reader tire if I should minutely describe our long-drawn journey from Paris to Geneva, if day by day I should record in the form of a journal the thronging miseries of her lot? Could my hand write, or language afford words to express, the variety of her woe, the hustling and crowding of one deplorable event upon another? Patience, O reader, whoever thou art, wherever thou dwellest, whether of race spiritual or sprung from some surviving pair, thy nature will be human, thy habitation the earth, thou wilt hear read of the acts of the extinct race, and will ask wonderingly if they who suffered that thou findest recorded, were of frail flesh and soft organization like thyself. Most true they were, weep therefore, for surely solitary being thou wilt be of gentle disposition. Shed compassionate tears, but the while lend thy attention to the tale, and learn the deeds and sufferings of thy predecessors. Yet the last events that marked our progress through France were so full of strange horror and gloomy misery that I dare not pause too long in the narration. If I were to dissect each incident, every small fragment of a second would contain an harrowing tale, whose minutest word would curdle the blood in thy young veins. It is right that I should erect for thy instruction this monument of the foregone race, but not that I should drag thee through the wards of an hospital, nor the secret chambers of the charnel house. This tale, therefore, shall be rapidly unfolded. Images of destruction, pictures of despair, the procession of the last triumph of death, shall be drawn before thee, swift as the rack driven by the north wind along the blotted splendor of the sky. Weed-grown fields, desolate towns, the wild approach of riderless horses had now become habitual to my eyes. Nay, sights far worse of the unburied dead and human forms which were strewn on the roadside and on the steps of one's frequented habitations where, through the flesh that wastes away beneath the parching sun, the whitening bones start forth and moulder in the sable dust. Sights like these had become, ah woe the while, so familiar that we had ceased to shudder, our spore-stung horses to sudden speed, as we passed them. France, in its best days, at least that part of France through which we travelled, had been a cultivated desert, and the absence of enclosures, of cottages, and even of peasantry, was saddening to a traveller from sunny Italy or busy England. Yet the towns were frequent and lively, and the cordial politeness and ready smile of the wooden-shoed peasant restored good humour to the splenetic. Now the old woman sat no more at the door with her distaff, the lank beggar no longer asked charity in the courtier-like phrase, nor on holidays did the peasantry thread with slow grace the mazes of the dance. Silence, melancholy bride of death, went in procession with him from town to town through the spacious region. We arrived at Fontainebleau, and were speedily prepared for the reception of our friends. On mustering our numbers for the night, three were found missing. When I inquired for them, the man to whom I spoke uttered the word, Plague, and fell at my feet in convulsions. He also was infected. There were hard faces around me, for among my troop were sailors who had crossed the line times unnumbered, soldiers who, in Russia and far America, had suffered famine, cold and danger, and men still sterner featured, once nightly depredators in our overgrown metropolis, men bred from their cradle to see the whole machine of society at work for their destruction. 
I looked round, and saw upon the faces of all horror and despair written in glaring characters. We passed four days at Fontainebleau. Several sickened and died, and in the meantime neither Adrian nor any of our friends appeared. My own troop was in commotion. To reach Switzerland, to plunge into rivers of snow, and to dwell in caves of ice, became the mad desire of all. Yet we had promised to wait for the Earl, and he came not. My people demanded to be led forward. Rebellion, if so we might call what was the mere casting away of straw-formed shackles, appeared manifestly among them. They would away on the word without a leader. The only chance of safety, the only hope of preservation from every form of indescribable suffering, was our keeping together. I told them this, while the most determined among them answered with sullenness that they could take care of themselves, and replied to my entreaties with scoffs and menaces. At length, on the fifth day, a messenger arrived from Adrian bearing letters which directed us to proceed to Auxerre, and there await his arrival, which would only be deferred for a few days. Such was the tenor of his public letters. Those privately delivered to me detailed at length the difficulties of his situation, and left the arrangement of my future plans to my own discretion. His account of the state of affairs at Versailles was brief, but the oral communications of his messenger filled up his omissions, and shewed me that perils of the most frightful nature were gathering around him. At first the reawakening of the plague had been concealed, but the number of deaths increasing, the secret was divulged, and the destruction already achieved was exaggerated by the fears of the survivors. Some emissaries of the enemy of mankind, the accursed impostors, were among them instilling their doctrine, that safety in life could only be ensured by submission to their chief and they succeeded so well that soon, instead of desiring to proceed to Switzerland, the major part of the multitude, weak-minded women and dastardly men, desired to return to Paris, and by ranging themselves under the banners of the so-called prophet, and by a cowardly worship of the principle of evil, purchased respite, as they hoped, from impeding death. The discord and tumult induced by these conflicting fears and passions detained Adrian. It required all his ardor in pursuit of an object, and his patience under difficulties, to calm and animate such a number of his followers as might counterbalance the panic of the rest, and lead them back to the means from which alone safety could be derived. He had hoped immediately to follow me, but being defeated in his intention, he sent his messenger urging me to secure my own troop at such a distance from Versailles, as to prevent the contagion of rebellion from reaching them promising at the same time to join me the moment a favorable occasion should occur, by means of which he could withdraw the main body of the emigrants from the evil influence at present exercised over them. I was thrown into a most painful state of uncertainty by these communications. My first impulse was that we should all return to Versailles, there to assist in extricating our chief from his perils. I accordingly assembled my troop and proposed to them this retrograde movement instead of the continuation of our journey to Auxerre. With one voice they refused to comply. The notion circulated among them was that the ravages of the plague alone detained the protector. They opposed his order to my request. They came to resolve to proceed without me, should I refuse to accompany them. Argument and adjuration were lost on these dastards. The continual diminution of their own numbers, affected by pestilence, added a sting to their dislike of delay, and my opposition only served to bring their resolution to a crisis. That same evening they departed towards Auxerre. Oaths, as from soldiers to their general, had been taken by them. These they broke. I also had engaged myself not to desert them. It appeared to me inhuman to ground any infraction of my word on theirs. 
the same spirit that caused them to rebel against me, would impel them to desert each other, and the most dreadful sufferings would be the consequence of their journey, in their present unordered and chiefless array. These feelings for a time were paramount, and, in obedience to them, I accompanied the rest towards Auxerre. We arrived the same night at Villeneuve-la-Guillard, a town at the distance of four posts from Fontainebleau. When my companions had retired to rest, and I was left alone to revolve and ruminate upon the intelligence I received of Adrian's situation, another view of the subject presented itself to me. What was I doing? And what was the object of my present movements? Apparently I was to lead this troop of selfish and lawless men towards Switzerland, leaving behind my family and my selected friend, which subject as they were hourly to the death that threatened to all, I might never see again. Was it not my first duty to assist the protector, setting an example of attachment and duty? At a crisis such as the one I had reached, it is very difficult to balance nicely opposing interests, and that towards which our inclinations lead us obstinately assumes the appearance of selfishness, even when we meditate a sacrifice. We are easily led at such times to make a compromise of the question, and this was my present resource. I resolved that very night to ride to Versailles. If I found affairs less desperate than I now deem them, I would return without delay to my troop. I had a vague idea that my arrival at that town would occasion some sensation more or less strong, of which we might profit, for the purpose of leading forward the vacillating multitude. At least no time was to be lost. I visited the stables, I saddled my favorite horse, and vaulting on his back, without giving myself time for further reflection or hesitation, quitted villeneuve la guillard on my return to Versailles. I was glad to escape from my rebellious troop and to lose sight for a time of the strife of evil with good, where the former forever remained triumphant. I was stung almost to madness by my uncertainty concerning the fate of Adrian, and grew reckless of any event except what might lose or preserve my unequaled friend. With an heavy heart that sought relief in the rapidity of my course, I rode through the night to Versailles. I spurred my horse, who addressed his free limbs to speed and tossed his gallant head in pride. The constellations reeled swiftly by, swiftly each tree and stone and landmark fled past my onward career. I bared my head to the rushing wind, which bathed my brow in delightful coolness. As I lost sight of Villeneuve-la-Guillard, I forgot the sad drama of human misery. Methought it was happiness enough to live, sensitive the while of the beauty of the verdure-clad earth, the star-bespangled sky, and the tameless wind that lent animation to the whole. My horse grew tired, and I, forgetful of his fatigue, still as he lagged, cheered him with my voice and urged him with the spur. He was a gallant animal, and I did not wish to exchange him for any chance beast I might light on, leaving him never to be refound. All night we went forward, in the morning he became sensible that we approached Versailles, to reach which, as his home, he mustered his flagging strength. The distance we had come was not less than fifty miles, yet he shot down the long boulevard swift as an arrow. Poor fellow, as I dismounted at the gate of the castle, he sunk on his knees, his eyes were covered with a film, he fell on his side, a few gasps inflated his noble chest, and he died. I saw him expire with an anguish, unaccountable even to myself, the spasm that was as wrenching of some limb in agonizing torture, but it was brief as it was intolerable. I forgot him as I swiftly darted through the open portal and up the majestic stairs of this castle of victories. Heard Adrian's voice, O oh fool, O oh woman nurtured, effeminate and contemptible being! 
I heard his voice and answered it with convulsive shrieks. I rushed into the hall of Hercules, where he stood surrounded by a crowd whose eyes turned in wonder on me, reminded me that on the stage of the world a man must repress such girlish ecstasies. I would have given worlds to have embraced him. I dared not. Half in exhaustion, half voluntarily, I threw myself at my length on the ground. Dare I disclose the truth to the gentle offspring of solitude? I did so, that I might kiss the dear and sacred earth he trod. I found everything in a state of tumult. An emissary of the leader of the elect had been so worked up by his chief, and by his own fanatical creed as to make an attempt on the life of the protector and preserver of lost mankind. His hand was arrested while in the act of poignarding the earl. The circumstance had caused the clamor I heard on my arrival at the castle, and the confused assembly of persons that I found assembled in the Salle d'Hercule. Although superstition and demoniac fury had crept among the emigrants, yet several adhered with fidelity to their noble chieftain, and many, whose faith and love had been unhinged by fear, felt all their latent affection rekindled by this detestable attempt. A phalanx of faithful breasts closed round him. The wretch who, although a prisoner and in bonds, vaunted his design and madly claimed the crown of martyrdom, would have been torn to pieces had not his intended victim interposed. Adrian, springing forward, shielded him with his own person, and commanded with energy the submission of his infuriate friends. At this moment I had entered. Discipline and peace were at length restored in the castle, and then Adrian went from house to house, from troop to troop, to soothe the disturbed minds of his followers, and recall them to their ancient obedience. But the fear of immediate death was still rife amongst these survivors of the world's destruction. The horror occasioned by the attempted assassination passed away. Each eye turned towards Paris. Men love a prop so well that they will lean on a pointed poison spear. And such was he, the impostor, who, with fear of hell for his scourge, most ravenous wolf, played the driver to a credulous flock. It was a moment of suspense that shook even the resolution of the unyielding friend of man. Adrian, for one moment, was about to give in, to cease the struggle, and quit, with a few adherents, to the deluded crowd, leaving them a miserable prey to their passions, and to the worst tyrant who excited them. But again, after a brief fluctuation of purpose, he resumed his courage and resolves, sustained by the singleness of his purpose and the untried spirit of benevolence which animated him. At this moment, as an omen of excellent import, his wretched enemy pulled destruction on his head, destroying with his own hands the dominion he had erected. His grand hold upon the minds of men took its rise from the doctrine inculcated by him, that those who believed in and followed him were the remnant to be saved, while all the rest of mankind were marked out for death. Now at the time of the flood the omnipotent repented him that he had created man, and as then with water, now with the arrows of pestilence, was about to annihilate. Now at the time of the flood the omnipotent repented him that he had created man, and as then with water, now with the arrows of pestilence, was about to annihilate all except those who obeyed his decrees promulgated by the Ipsigixit prophet. It is impossible to say on what foundations this man built his hopes of being able to carry on such an imposture. It is likely that he was fully aware of the lie which murderous nature might give to his assertions, and believed it to be the cast of a die, whether he should in future ages be reverenced as an inspired delegate from heaven, or be recognized as an impostor by the present dying generation. At any rate, he resolved to keep up the drama to the last act. When, on the first approach of summer, the fatal disease again made its ravages among the followers of Adrian, 
the impostor exultingly proclaimed the exemption of his own congregation from the universal calamity. He was believed. His followers, hitherto shut up in Paris, now came to Versailles. Mingling with the coward band there assembled, they reviled their admirable leader, and asserted their own superiority and exemption. At length the plague, slow-footed but sure in her noiseless advance, destroyed the illusion, invading the congregation of the elect, and showering promiscuous death among them. Their leader endeavored to conceal this event. He had a few followers who, admitted into the arcana of his wickedness, could help him in the execution of his nefarious designs. Those who sickened were immediately and quietly withdrawn, the cord in a midnight grave disposed of them forever, while some plausible excuse was given for their absence. At last a female, whose maternal vigilance subdued even the effects of the narcotics administered to her, became a witness of their murderous designs on her only child. Mad with horror, she would have burst among her deluded fellow-victims, and, wildly shrieking, have awaked the dull ear of night with the history of the fiend-like crime. When the impostor, in his last act of rage and desperation, plunged a poignard in her bosom, thus wounded to death, her garments dripping with her own life-blood, bearing her strangled infant in her arms, beautiful and young as she was, Juliet, for it was she, denounced to the host of deceived believers the wickedness of their leader. He saw the aghast looks of her auditors, changing from horror to fury, the names of those already sacrificed were echoed by their relatives, now assured of their loss. The wretch, with that energy of purpose which had borne him thus far in his guilty career, saw his danger, and resolved to evade the worst forms of it. He rushed on one of the foremost, seized a pistol from his girdle, and his loud laugh of derision mingled with the report of the weapon with which he destroyed himself. They left his miserable remains even where they lay. They placed the corpse of poor Juliet and her babe upon a bier, and all, with hearts subdued to saddest regret, in long procession walked towards Versailles. They met troops of those who had quitted the kindly protection of Adrian, and were journeying to join the fanatics. The tale of horror was recounted, all turned back, and thus at last, accompanied by the undiminished numbers of surviving humanity, and preceded by the mournful emblem of the recovered reason, they appeared before Adrian, and again and forever vowed obedience to his commands, and fidelity to his cause. End of chapter 6 Thank you once again for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. You can find us online at Black Clock Audio Tales on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Meet up with us at pgttcm.com. Find out what's going on with this and other podcasts by Badger Drift Studios, which is where we record this in beautiful North Portland. If you want to be on a show, if you have a book that you would like to have reviewed, if you want to be on Welcome to Portland, eat charcuterie and drink beer in the studio while learning how to podcast, I can accommodate that. But you have to take the first step by going to pgttcm.com and submitting. Send us a link to your stories. Become friends with us on Facebook at uh, pgttcm or black clock audio tales and pgttcm of course is short for the people's guide to the cthulhu mythos our monthly show at the end of every month on tuesday we have pgttcm thank you so much for listening edited by db spitzer music by kevin mcleod as always thank you